Welcome to the My Risk Advisor podcast. This podcast is for anyone in the Australian financial planning ecosystem with a focus on life risk insurance. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just starting out, I think you'll get heaps of value out of this podcast. I'm your host, Phil Thompson, and I'm a life risk insurance specialist, and you're listening to My Risk Advisor. Hey there, welcome to My Risk Advisor podcast. Today, I've got Sean Clements from NOR Financial and we just jump on, have a chat about the last 12 months, what we've been through in terms of the changes with income protection, how we've kind of thought about it as advisors and what we're thinking about moving forward. And we have a quick chat about the quality of advice review and the way we're thinking about it. So I think you get his value out of this episode. So get stuck right in. Welcome back, Sean. Uh, this is the third time you've been on, a regular contributor to the Myris Advisor podcast. So thank you for jumping on. Good to be here. Now, what we're going to chat about is the last 12 months that has been. Um, and so we'll talk about like product evolution in that time. Um, and pre-September 2021, what was our feelings about the new products when they came out? What was our feeling? And then the evolution. So Let's just kind of, for all the listeners, I'm going to assume not everyone's as much of an insurance geek as us two. Um, so give us a kind of a painted picture for me as what's happened over the last 12 months with uh, income protection. Uh, so look, I think leading up to uh, October last year, it was a bit of a boogeyman. We didn't know what it was going to look like. I mean, what's this uh, suited occupation? What's this you know, uh, duties-based definition they're going to use? Really, no idea uh, of what it was going to be. And look, um, if you recall, geez, way back uh, 2021, I think it was, um, uh, sorry, 20, 2020. 2020. Um, when AIA released Core, uh, and Core followed uh, APRA guidelines, and it was this really dry sort of after two years, we switched down to 60 and moved to any OC. Um, or any occupation category at 60% um, benefit of your income, um, all indemnity-based, et cetera, et cetera. And that priced pretty much the same as their existing product, which is also mm-hmm. on sale at the time. So we're looking at it and saying, hold on, we're getting a far weaker contract for basically the same money. You know, I'd have rocks in my head to, to recommend it. Uh, and fast forward to today, you know, we're watching um, premiums increase pretty significantly across older books, so the agreed value level premiums and this sort of thing, uh, and especially on, um, oh, look, I'm going to call it by name, otherwise nobody will know, but uh, BT, you know, now they've closed off book. Uh, they're literally sending letters to uh, clients saying, well, uh, this is what's going to happen. We're not going to bring forward your uh, definitions um, or upgrade your definitions automatically. Um, perhaps you should look for a better option. Uh, you know, pretty softly worded, uh, but that's essentially what they're getting at. Um, you know, so we go out to market, we look around, and we're finding uh, comparable, you know, uh, current products for a third of the cost. Um, and there is differences, but, um, you know, I think it, I, I, I pretty much looked and said, yeah, well, let's go, you know, let's have our three-tier definitions and our agreed value and all this sort of stuff, and that'd be great. But um, we've just got to look at it, I think, from the perspective of if somebody's ill or injured or unable to work and uh, they can't they can't earn an income, they're still being covered. I mean, it doesn't have the bells and whistles that it used to, but, uh, you know, what's that worth to somebody? Uh, you know, I'm getting someone who's going from $3,000 three years ago to $12,000 Mm. Uh, in premium, I think. Well, <laughs> wasn't this a level premium? Um, so those underlying factors, I, I think we're having to look at and say, well, you know, are they still true? Uh, and uh, relying on level premiums like we did, oh, you can be insured for the next twenty five years; it'll cost you about the same. Uh, is not really an accurate assumption anymore. So, mm. yeah, and I mean, it's interesting the product, the product evolution. So. Um, APRO came out with these changes and there was, you know, several tranches of these changes where first was agreed value in 2020 and getting rid of that. Next was just a, the massive overhaul of income protection policies, which, you know, as we, as we can kind of discuss, wasn't maybe as big as what we thought. 
um, when when AIA came out to the market and they were the first one to bring their new product out, it was it was very kind of stark how how different the old product and the new product was. And then you know once first of October hit, every insurer came out and we got to see them and price them up and you know yourself just like our business we spent a full month not doing any work just looking at the new product going what the heck is going on with all these products and how do we compare them and and there was a very big disparity in the market um, which is kind of good in lots of ways but can to be honest is quite difficult to compare because um it is it is very difficult for an advisor especially if you're doing a holistic advice to Get into the nitty gritty of the of the individual policy and what's important to the end client. When there is such a disparity, it is much easier just to go, okay, give us underwriting terms and then give us a, a pricing comparison. We can kind of go from there because they're all the same. So when they first came out, they were very different. You know, we're looking at products that drop down to sixty percent and could even go as low as fifty percent income replacement, um, depending on the severity of the disability. Other um, income protection policies would cover 70% for the life and based on your own occupation. Um, and so kind of give, it, give us an understanding, what's the product journey been over the last 12 months? Because I know you've, you're aware of future product changes and, and, and things that may not have hit the market just yet, but, but there are insurers coming in and making adjustments to their products. What have you seen in the market kind of over the last 12 months? Oh, look, I've been saying since day dot, look, if we could all get relatively similar products, that would be a lot better for client and advisor understanding. But, you know, it, it almost seems like we're getting further away from that uh, than, you know, where we started, where everyone went sort of close to guideline. Um, MetLife went. Do you think so? Do you think we're getting of, further away? Well, MetLife went on the far end of the spectrum, but their product was very similar, age 65 sort of structure right uh so then you've got um you know clearview with their partial definition and things like this like cutting around the edge of that um where they're not own all the way through but or own occupation the whole way through but they are uh you know have a have a, a ceiling sorry a floor on the um, percentage of earnings right so it's quite easy for you to trigger a a, a, a partial on that which is different from every other product i think and then you add this five-year onoc uh, definition in on top and you've got this quite you know wide disparity of not only uh difference between providers but different options within each provider so you might have four or five mm. different product suites to choose between just one uh, provider yeah it's a pain in the neck <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's pretty difficult. But I actually think they're coming together a lot. So like all these um, like passive income offsets that, you know, several providers came out with and they've removed them since. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of insurers, well, sorry, not a lot of insurers replaced 70% for the life of the um, the claim, which they're, they're all basically having an offering. Um, in the market to say, well, if others can do it, why can't we? So let's let's bring that out. If if not all of them have brought it out, they're all will bring those those changes out. So most insurers will allow a replacement ratio of seventy percent. And so the only major differences I feel moving forward, other than those like separate products that have a five year benefit term, the major differences between products is is actually much less than when we started, uh, in my view. I'll give you that to agree. I, I think they started off with one or one or two options in the series. Now there are three or four options in the series. I think that's the confusing part. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Tau just Tau as an insurer, they just replaced one, took one out, and, yeah. and replaced with another one. Um, and so, yeah, I, I actually think it's it is becoming a little bit easier. But the, I mean, the last twelve months of recommending income protection has been a real pain in the neck because you know. Like we've got young clients and we, we have a very strong belief is set it up properly and hold for a really long time um, and setting up these policies and going for the first six months, we just said, we don't know if this is going to change. We, we may need to review this in 12 months and, and rewrite the whole policy because we've got no idea what's going to happen. And because and my fear was I felt like insurers came out and and undercooked their income protection policy and they knew they had to change it straight away. So like some of those things basically from the first month 
like the NEOS and PPS who had a, a passive income offset, they just straight away said, we're going to have to get rid of this because no one likes it. Um, and so it was interesting having these these kind of features and benefits that we knew weren't going to be passed on, like a 70% income replacement ratio. Policies that you set up with, you know, towel or, or some of the some of the providers that drop down like they're not passing that on when they bring that that product back in you've got to then you know reapply for that for that yeah. new product so it's really interesting like how have you kind of found you know running your business um with new clients so we can talk about you know the existing clients and the, the complexity around that but new clients coming in today how have you kind of found it the last 12 months i mean new clients it's what's in what's on offer and if they've never been they've never had a product before then look realistically it's look this is the best you can get uh your best value um this is what we think you should do uh, it's pretty straightforward uh, and, and look you can generally speak to we might need to tinker with this every three to five years and as you know you know fee for service so yeah, there's got to be a pretty compelling case to Tell someone, hey, you got to come back in. We got to strip this down and redo it again and, and bill you for it. Um, you know, because their break even is usually three or four years away. Uh, mm. You know, based on our advice fees uh, for younger clients, especially. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you want to be able to stand behind your advice. You want to be able to hang your hat on it and say this is accurate and it's and it's going to stand the test of time. But we just don't have that certainty we did with level premiums and. You know, um, being able to set these things and just say, "Yep, that's good. Should be good in about twenty years," and might throttle it back a bit. You know, um, that that's about it. Now we just don't know. Um, so I suppose you need to put that um, picture in there and say, "Well, look, we don't know when this five-year thing's going to come in. If things change in the future, you know, we'll deal with it then." And it's just, uh, you know, you've just got to call it as you say it. And and this is literally nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's an interesting question I, I want to pose to you. Has that made you rethink about um, your idea of fee for service? And you know, because because the you know the commission model is if you set forget and never touch the client again, the commission model doesn't make sense, and it's and it's not value for money. And we can kind of appreciate that. And so fee for service does make sense because there's a break even period. But if you do feel like okay, we may need to revisit this, have you had to think about you know as a business owner, like do we move towards a commission model, knowing that we will have an ongoing service obligation, or not obligation as a as a like an official obligation, but you know your obligation to your client to help them. Uh, it's definitely an obligation, uh, regardless of whether it's legislated or not. In my mind, if you're getting paid by somebody, you're, it's an obligation uh, morally for me. Yeah, so, but I mean, the, the word obligation in you I know, get what you mean in financial services is much different than than you know talking about insurance reviews. But yeah, if it's a set and forget, we won't talk about it in twenty years' time. Have you kind of revisited that um, idea? <sighs> yes, um, but. We pretty much moved to all fee for service this year, yeah. um, which means removing existing commissions from existing clients um, to the point where we're at almost no commissions. I think there's a couple of friends and family on there, still 20 bucks a year or something. Mm. Um, you know, it's it, the model's designed for uh, us to have a lot of people on the books. Um, that don't pay us anything, but come in every three to five years and ask for something and pay for that. So at the moment we're on about 250 clients or something like this. Um, you know, single advisor, 250 clients, if they're all ongoing, I'd be underwater. There'd mm. be no way, no way I could survive. So theoretically, you know, we're reckoning about, Oh, 700, maybe a thousand, we can keep on the books because I'm servicing 200 a year. Yeah. Um, so we don't have enough on the books at the moment to continuously generate that workflow. And I'll be lying if I don't look back at the last five years worth of business writing and think, geez, it'd be nice to be collecting 25, 30% of that on a regular basis or 22, 30% of that uh, on a regular basis. Uh, no, I definitely would be lying to say the change over the last couple of months hasn't hurt because you sort of look back and go, where's all my ongoing? Oh, right, yeah, I got rid of that. That was kind mm. of stupid. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's that was the deal that we made. And and the reason for my question, I mean, we've, we've discussed this 
um, on the podcast before and fee for service. It's it's less about the 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 idea around fee for service or commission and whether which one's right or which one's wrong, but more about like it's an interesting discussion thinking about like how do these external factors impact our kind of our business models and think about how do we actually run an efficient business um, yeah. because it's it's all good and well to say commissions is the right way and this is how I'm running my business or fee for service is the right way and this is how I'm running my business, but. Um, but external factors will influence that and things that decisions that we make today as business owners has an impact in five years' time and we kind of just hope we do the right thing um, and hope we kind of make the right call for, for ourselves and for our clients because, um, you know, as, as you kind of mentioned that, well, maybe you need to review the policies, you know, soon and, and especially if we get to the five-year um, term, which we can kind of touch on what that what that um what that looks like and if we believe Apple will actually bring that in. But that'll then change the equation of, you know, what's more feasible for the clients and what's not, which is really interesting. Um, thinking about as a business owner, how do you manage that ever-changing legislation and how does that impact the business model? Well, look, I mean, look forward to two or three years from now. If I'm still charging what I'm charging in QARs, letting a sign on the back of a cocktail napkin, um, then, you know, obviously it's going to reduce my uh, overheads by... Uh, a heap, right? So, you know, that'll work well. Um, all I got to do is hold my breath till then and keep prices the same, right? But, um, you know, it's a bit of a, we don't know. I, I think if you you model out what, and this is, you know, about modeling reality uh, versus saying, oh, well, your premium will increase by 5% per year or, or use the projection that you've been given. Those projections, in my mind, are worth very little, um, as far as what we've seen over the past few years and knowing that if these five-year term does come in, we'll be back in another legacy book. So, mm. you know, knowing these products are going to change, I think is reasonable. Is it three years away? Is it five? Is it 10? Who knows? Right now, client wants insurance. Break-even is three years away. We've got a case. Um, if we don't have that five years from now, hey, you know, we couldn't see that at the time. Let's not, you know crystal ball gaze uh, to a large extent. And that, and that's right. And 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 it's less about a um a client experience. Like obviously we, we all want to work for our clients and it's less about the client experience I'm asking about because at the end of the day, it's just like anything I recommend at the time I recommend it, is it right at the time? Well, yes. Do, do I know what's going to happen in the future? Like, well, no, I don't. I can kind of guess. I can kind of understand, you know, but but I talk about um, certain insurance companies and whether they're going to be around or going to or they're they're you know looking to get sold and if they're going to provide my client the best terms and they're underpriced and we can kind of feel like they're underpriced like BT in 2020 when we did we were getting yeah. really good terms they were underpriced I still recommended them and I'm having many phone calls today about about that recommendation and and it was. It was still right at the time and I still tell my clients this is the right decision at the time and I'm really comfortable with it. But, you know, how do we kind of improve and do we kind of, you know, because it's difficult. We kind of fall into a trap as advisors but at the end of the day, we've got to serve the client that sits in front of us today based on the information we know today. So, it is really hard to kind of build in these strategies of the future. And so, that kind of leads on to my next question because I'd, I'd like to quickly touch on the quality of advice review but but the other thing is like the the, the income protection products with a five year benefit term. So I know you've got some thoughts around that, and in, in terms of some strategies of do we just have income protection for five years and then just you know boost up our TBD later? Oh look, I, it makes a lot of sense, and the whole stepping stone approach that was originally posited, you know, by AA um, with Core was around. Okay, well. If you're off work for five years, then you're probably totally and permanently disabled. If this, if this, if this, right? And you know that that stands true for full disability. If you've been fully disabled for two or three years, the probability that it's going to be own or any oc is actually pretty low. Um, you know, you're probably going to fall through or, or, or catch a TBD claim. But nobody's taking into account partials, um, and you know it's a partial benefit, and especially for a high income earner. Um, you know, it's pretty significant. If you, that said, I mean, try and get over twenty k worth of IP these days. It's a, a bit of a challenge. Um, we don't have those clients, so I don't have that issue. So. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, try and get over forty. It's even funner. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, look, it's um, 
this sort of thing of, I think there's a real gap and that whole five-year double TPD strategy where people go a five-year own occupation benefit and then double up on TPD ONOC uh, with that mentality is leaving a massive gap for the client um, as far as, you know, if they can only stand for, you've got a surgeon or something like this that can only stand for six hours a day rather than their standard 10 or 12, you know, they're going to drop their income by 50% or 40%, yeah. whatever it happens to be. Um, that's going to be a claim. Under TPD, it's not. So, you know, um, who knows what that could co- what might cause that. Um, so getting rid of a 65 benefit for a 30-something-year-old, I mean, regardless of whether you do this any or own occupation or all the way through versus chasing a 70% benefit period because you've got to get your 70 because they want to be insured for as much as possible. And this comes back to what I was saying before about having... Uh, you know, an appropriate, uh, realistic expectation of what you're covered for. It's not about chasing as much insurance as you can get. It's about covering for what you need. And if you're earning eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars a year, and you're unable to work, I'm sorry, you're going to have to tighten the belt and live on three hundred k a year. I, I think that's reasonable. Um, <laughs> you know, it's. Yeah, if you have to push it to 70% so you can get 350k a year, it's like, really? It's just, you know, it doesn't really strike to me as, as um, you know, you need that to get by. Um, so, but I mean, but I mean, that's that's kind of interesting because at the end of the day, it's the client, the client can have a five million dollar mortgage. Like those surgeons can have a five million dollar yeah. mortgage, and, and they they do, and they uh, require on, that that yeah. need, and so, um. Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked about this, you know, before. Like, and I spoke to a client the other day who does income splitting and wants two hundred and forty k income, and I said, "Hey, like, we've just got to realize that you're currently income split and you're paying tax on one twenty k of income times two, and income protection only covers seventy percent of your income, and it's all going to you if you claim on it. And so, like, let's work out what the actual um, amount that you need um, as a monthly benefit." Um, on your income and and their income is quite healthy and quite good and um, but but it's just that understanding of like at claim time you're getting seventy percent of that and it's all going to you and you're getting fully taxed on that seventy percent like that's a much less than you know maybe what you're currently living off and so we kind of just work backward instead of what they felt like they needed um, but at the end of the day it's the client who are paying for the premiums it's the client who are getting paid the benefit and it's just really helping them understand. And so, just to touch on this five-year benefit period, um, income protection policies. I've we've never written that. I've I've we predominantly our average client age is like thirty-three. So, I don't. I'm I'm like you. I don't have that belief that I think that is an appropriate strategy for those clients on mass. But you know, you talk to ten different advisors, you get twenty different appropriate strategies on what what the insurance needs is. Um, but I, yeah, I did an interview with um, Zurich Claims, and and they said. Um, their data on two-year plus claims, forty percent of partials, um, and and just from that, and you know, unless I see the actual data, like the actual hard numbers, um, yeah, they're always a bit. Got to take everything with a, got to take everything with a grain of salt, especially if they don't have a five-year benefit product on the market. And so you got to always just read through the lines. But you know, I appreciate that that's probably true and correct because it was the claims. Um, manager, uh, head of claims who I was talking to. Um, and so it is it is interesting going that five-year benefit period, okay, well, we may not get TPD. Um, and it's, you know, what do we say to the client then? Like, and was that advice true and correct? And it is a, it's a tricky space that we work in in insurance advice because at the end of the day, if everyone gets paid and, and happy days, the client wins then we're fine. But if we do a recommendation that has these gaps and we don't really, you know, watertight the recommendation and make it really clear to the client what they're getting and what they're not getting, then we kind of do open ourselves up for a bit of pain. Well, look, I mean, that said, as, as, as you know, it's about process. And look, if you have a robust reason and process to why you do what you're doing and you can clearly articulate that against other, you know, products and benefits on the market, then... You know, do what you got to do, right? Um, if you think that's what fits, then fine. But you know, as far as oh well, look, my client wanted this, 
no, 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 no. Clients don't get to prescribe. Clients take prescriptions. So essentially it's people ask, oh, well, here's three providers, pick one. No, 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 I'm picking one. I'll do the quotes on the three mm. providers to get an accurate representation, but you're ultimately making the assessment. If you can back up your reasoning behind that, which is, you know, what an SOA is for. And look, coming back to before on, on expenses and, and, and benefit uh, levels, um, one of the most relevant and most irrelevant parts of a fact find is usually surplus income. Mm. Nobody ever does their budget, you know. I mean, how, how many people have filled out a full budget for you? Well, yeah, we we actually do. We actually ask the question in a completely different way that I'm much more comfortable with. Compliance teams don't love it, but we don't ask what your living expenses are. What are you saving every single month? Tell me that figure, and then I'll work yep. out the rest later. Yeah, that's where I go to um, yeah. because it allows you to work backwards from it and go, okay, well, here we go. If you didn't have that, this is what you're spending. To... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, we know what you're spending because yeah. you're not saving it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, at the same time, it's sort of, okay, well, how much do you spend? If you're stating figures in a pure yearly figure or yearly dollar value, and you're saying your insurance is going to cost you $2,500 a year, right? Um, not the cost of a cup of coffee once a month or once once an hour for the rest of your life or something like this, you know? Um you know, you're not messing around with it. Nobody's going to come and pull you up on, you didn't investigate living expenses to figure out whether this insurance was affordable for you. Hey, I very clearly stated it was two grand a year. You showed me that you could afford that. It was informed consent. There we go, right? But when you're sort of sticking it in super and doing this and doing that, and five years later, they come back and see that their super has been eaten alive by 15 grand a year worth of insurance, you know, you're not going to have a leg to stand on, even if it is, hey, well, you got 70% of your uh, income in the event that something happens, you know, it's, it's not going to stand up. So you've got to ask yourself, what are they comfortable with in paying as a premium, but also what are they comfortable with living on? Mm. And that whole fact-finding process of getting that dollar value out of them is like, as you say, a reverse engineering process to, to get to that point. So it's about that know your client thing rather than follow the math and insure them for as much as you can because that's not the goal. It's insurance for as much as they need because it's a big waste of money, right? Well, yeah, let's hope so. That's that's the plan. Yeah. Uh, is is it, It's meant to be a big waste of money. Um, but I mean, yeah, that's it's an interesting and we could talk a long time about different philosophies and the way we should build insurance and, and what is, you know, as I said, we talk to 10 different advisors, we'll get 20 different ways that we should do certain things and everyone's got their own opinion about those things. Um, but touching on, you know, quality of advice review, you mentioned it'd be good in the future to write our, our SOA on the back of the napkin and tell the client what to do. Now, do you think we'll get there? Oh, look, come back to uh, when I started in, what, 97 and what they were writing then, that'd be nice. Um, but uh, I don't think we'll get there. Um, I think, you know, there's some robust strategy papers out there and things like this that say, you know, this is what we're doing, why we're doing it, how much it's going to cost you. Uh, and then being able to refer to a PDS, uh, you know, I, I think is accurate. I noticed the QAR um, completely skipped over risk advice and commissions and things like this because they haven't finished that process yet. That's right, yeah. Um, which, you know, it was a big gap, obviously, or I think, geez, I'd, I'd like to know more. Mm. Um, but, Especially because uh, it was it was the, the whole review started off LIF review, got expanded to quality of advice and then skipped out on LIF, uh, which is, yeah, awesome. It's nice to know that um, they're giving it the credit it deserves and not thinking, oh, well, commissions are conflicted and nobody should have commissions because they're mm. bad. And then uh, we'll just stop that because obviously it's a little bit more complex that and the, and the industry and, uh, you know, the public psyche is a little bit more nuanced than just changing the rules and everybody going, oh, that's fine and we'll just keep doing what we're doing. Um, mm. Yeah. And so, I guess my question about the quality of advice review, let's say a lot of those things get implemented, um, what do you th how much time saving do you feel like would come into your business per, per client? Look, if we're, to, if we're easily referring to a web page or some sort of templated document that gives everybody generic information, what is life, what is this, what is that, um, you know, I reckon we could get down to an exec executive summary, product replacement table, and uh, this is what we recommend. Um, talking five pages instead of 45. 
Um, yeah, I mean, and and I keep looking at it in terms of my business and my processes, and I kind of think, I mean, I'd love to to ease the burden of financial advice and all the like requirements that go into a statement of advice. But I kind of look at it and go, most of my time in my business is is a lot of the research. Now, there is yeah. probably a two hours per client just making sure we, you know, say this in the exact perfect way so we don't get sued in five years' time. There is that, um, but it, it, it makes up the major- minority of the time spent for me and my team. Like, I'll still be doing full pre-assessments for every client. I'll still be doing a full research for every client. I'll still be doing, you know, the exact same level of research across the board for every single client. It's just maybe I'll be a little less freaked out about getting sued in 10 years' time for this product. But even then, I'll probably still be freaked out about that same same outcome. Whoa. And so I kind of read it and went, okay, the, the, the mentality shift is really positive. And, you know, I've, I'm, I'm not as old as you, Sean, so I haven't been around as long oh, as you. But, thanks, man. Yeah. But I haven't seen the kind of the positive view towards, okay, how do we ease the burden of advice? It's always been the opposite. It's It's gotten more and more difficult the whole time I've been around. Um, so that's really positive, but I kind of look at it as a business and go, I don't know how much I'll be saving. Yeah, but you understand this and this it's not about your workload. It's about, well, two things. If they make it easier for the client, which is what the goal is, to make it easily understandable by the client, right? That's what we all want because if we do that, they get what they want. It's easier for them to make an informed decision. And it means we don't spend hours and hours justifying our value because if you can do a job for 1500 instead of 3500 it's a lot easier for them to say yes um, than you song and dancing for three, four separate appointments, uh, coming up with fact finds that they don't fill out, uh, budget planners that they couldn't be bothered about, uh, pre-assessments they click no to until you get to the actual application, you know, this sort of stuff. Um, if we can say, hey, we want this raw information, if you don't provide us with that, then we're going to go template um, and make some assumptions, fill in some gaps. If we can achieve that and, uh, you know, disclaimer in a way or we'll get to some point where we're allowing them to make the choices that are important to them, otherwise not dealing with the finicky little pieces, it's going to make life easier for everybody. And it means we're doing better work uh, for more important, more informed people, not dazzling them with 40 pages of garbage. That, that yeah, and that's read. true. And, and, and there is a huge value. I mean, I would love to just completely get rid of the SOA because no one understands it. But I, but I feel like the research on, on the back end, I don't know if we would give up any of that or change any of that. Um, the actual document we show the clients will be, here's a two, three page showing you exactly what you've got now and what we recommend you take out and, and then one page, you know, explaining why we tell you to. Um, like that, that would be brilliant. But in terms of like all the work on the back end, yeah, there's, there's not a huge amount of like time. Say I'm, I'm, all, I'm, a, I'm for a lot of the kind of proposed ideas and, and how to think about it and the, um, I'm very positive towards it. Um, but in terms of a business, I'm like, hmm, don't know. I mean, mind you, I don't do four meetings, but um, with the clients like you do, but um, we're not fee for service, so we, we don't try and beef up our our time, our billable hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy billable hours, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, but but all the all the research and the work involved in doing risk is just like pretty significant anyway. If you're doing it well um, up front, um, yeah, give me a three page SOA. I'd love that but we're still probably doing 90% of the workload. Yeah. And look, I think um, if you're looking at uh, farm advice or, you know, investment advice in comparison to risk advice, they're very different beasts. Um, And, you know, farm advice, if you know your strategy well and you're repeating that, realistically, have you got X number in your bank account and can you afford X number per month? You know, it's it's pretty much the same. As long as your risk appetite is the same, it, it, it fits, right? Um, insurance advice, a lot of different providers, a lot of different options, a lot of different ifs and buts. Mm. Um, I think that's that, you know, I mean, there are people who call themselves risk specialists, which run a lot of risks. And there are people who are risk specialists who research risk, um, you know, and 
it, it, I think that's a bit of a I'm difference. I'm the former, you're the latter. Is that what, we, is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> I don't write a lot, mate. <laughs> um, you just you know, research but, most of the time. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, you know, like it's, it's a, you can do that sort of numbers game with FUM, uh, with investment, uh, with insurance, a little bit difficult uh, because you do need to understand the client a lot better and have that trust to have that conversation of, you know, uh, this is what matters to me, you know, um, what does my family look like, all this sort of stuff. And yeah, I mean, asking someone for 200 grand to stick into an account they've never heard of, that requires trust too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a, there's a level of trust in both. I guess the 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 risk with moving from one super fund to another is pretty minor. Like, are we going to perform better or am I going to save you? Like, really, am I going to save you fees? We don't know performance, so am I going to save you fees or is there a feature or benefit? So we can move over without any risk. Insurance, it is all based on your health history at the time you apply. And so moving every three years uh, bears a lot of risk on on the advisor and the client. The client takes on that risk of, of moving policies. And so moving any policy from one policy to the next based on the client's health history is is really important. That's what that's what brings the complexity. Like when we have a client come to us without any existing cover, oh, it's, it's so easy. Great. I know. How good are those? <laughs> Happy days. <laughs> but uh, but when we've got existing health issue, existing health issues, or they've got existing cover, or, or both of those together, then it's like okay, there's a lot of work involved in working out how do I not get sued. Basically, sounds like your clan's home. Yeah, they are. I just heard them then. <laughs> So the last thing I just want to touch on is APRA's changing. So they changed agreed value, they changed sustainability measures, but another thing in the sustainability measures was a five-year term. Help me understand what's going on with that, Sean. Are they bringing it in October? Uh, no, is my understanding. Um, indefinitely postponed uh, was the last I heard of that. I don't get to hear what's happening behind the secret doors, but uh, apparently that's illegal and they've got to change the whole corpse act to do that um mm. so yeah that's going to take a while uh, to get that one done so as far as everyone and uh, you remember last september and the september before i do not want to do that next month or this month i couldn't think of anything worse than having uh six times the amount of usual clients slamming down the doors and going absolutely crazy um trying to get this stuff done uh before the end of the month um because you know, I mean, you, you do bad work when you're under pressure mm. um, and clients make bad decisions when they're rushed. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's smooth sailing for the time being until APRA does, you know, finalise what that looks like and, hey, we might end up with a whole bunch of legacy books again. As far as I'm concerned, um, level premiums are dead, but that's my opinion. Um, I think the regulator wants that. That's my opinion um, because... You know, interest rates are on the rise. That's going to alleviate some pressure there. But uh, you know, if we're if we're going to keep rolling through these legacy books, how are they sustainable? Yeah, but I I wonder. Well, my understanding of the APRA changes. So we rolled on from one subject to the next pretty quickly, uh, which is what we're good at. Um, but my understanding about the APRA changes that that next change of the five-year term is very unlikely to come in. Um, it, it's really disadvantageous for um, like females who are taking time out of the workforce um, and that, that's something that needs to um, be addressed. Uh, I think it was probably a little bit ill-informed and, and idealistic from APRA to think that we could just have a rolling five-year term. Like the idea, the concept that insurance companies can change terms is great the idea of a rolling five-year term is not a good implementation measure. And so I think that's, I, I dare say that's not going to come in. And so therefore, are we going to have a legacy book um, issue? I don't know. And that's why, yeah, we we did a lot of changes to our recommendation and, and the way we think about the world. And then we've kind of rolled into going, well, I think this is the new, new world. And I think we'll kind of run with these new products for a long time to come because um, in, insurers don't want it. Advisors don't want it. It's not good for the clients. It's going to increase cost. It's going to increase burden. So that, that five-year term, I don't, I actually don't see that coming in anytime soon. That's kind of the, the, the tea leaves that I'm reading. What I'd really like to see is if we do move to that five-year term or you know, loss of guaranteed renewable, uh, and I know this is 
statistically very difficult to do, but why can't clients just roll over to the new product series? Uh, mm. No underwriting, move straight across. That would make life so much simpler. But then you're getting potentially unhealthy lives in the book. I understand that that's a problem. But, um, you know, any other insurance company you call up, and we're constantly having these arguments at the moment, or can you push them and, you know, like you call up your health insurance or your car insurance and say, oh, I'm thinking of moving to another provider. Can you do better? And they'll give you a loyalty discount or something mm. like this. Um, while there is behind closed doors a little bit of wiggle room on that, um, it's not really in the benefit of members if we're pushing for these loyalty discounts because it's just further eroding that book. Mm. Um, so, you know, why can't that be applied uh, to, okay, well, we can move you to the new series. How about we move you to the new package? Uh, you'll save some money. Um, and it's going to keep risk in force, but... How many people call you up and just even today on a regular basis and say, uh, my insurance premium is too high, I've, I've, I've had a gutful, just cancel the whole thing and just want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. You could halve your cover or you could do this or you could go to 90 days or you could, you know, there's a whole bunch of options available. Nah, had enough. Um, yeah, and, and we, we, I'm in a fortunate position in the business where our clients are quite new and fresh. And so even the ones that were on the old old products, they're not been in there for that long and they were all generally priced into the, the current pricing almost, apart from like a lot of our BT book uh, that we wrote in 2020. Um, outside of that, a lot of them are kind of priced in the current pricing. Now, as um, if they re-rate, over time, then yeah, we're having these discussions. Um, but for us, it, yeah, I, I talk to every client like who who has this conversation. And said, look, it's not just a cancel or keep; it's a cancel, adjust, or or keep. Like mm. you, you don't you don't need to be cancelling at all. Um, and you know, some clients still cancel, even even you know, fairly new on the books as well. They still cancel, and this is a headache I, I will have in the future, no doubt. But today, it's I'm very fortunate that we don't have a huge book of legacy or old legacy um, clients. And even when we were selling it, like I knew the profitability of insurance companies, I knew that insurers lost three point two four billion dollars or three point two billion dollars. And when I was selling it, I was saying these insurers are losing money hand over fist and it's good to be a client of a new of a losing of a company that loses money but eventually they've got to make money so <laughs> something's got to give so this is almost certainly going to increase and um and you know you'd say that but clients forget it of course um yeah. but it's an interesting kind of world that we're that we're moving into and i mean as we wrap up where do you see you know is there anything in the business that you're going to be looking at um you know in changing or adjusting or you kind of just kind of doubling down on what you're doing? Oh, look, I think we're getting a lot of market saturation in our uh, space, which is, you know, 30, 35-year-old doctors and they've got severe health conditions and that's why we know insurance so well. And it's really about uh, we're playing with this model of how to uh, do B2B for for advisors, you know, who might be in the wealth um, space but don't know risk well. So outsource risk to us, we write it fee-for-service, send it back to the client or send it back to them as the client yeah. uh, to look after them. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a different language um, that we need to understand a little bit better because um, you put me in front of a, a guy who runs a plumbing business or something like this, I usually don't get along that well. I, I, speak, <laughs> I speak weird. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, uh, and then I start asking very intrusive questions about their income and uh, health conditions. Uh, usually doesn't play out well, but um, you know, these are stuff that we need to need to know. If we've got a warm lead coming across from an advisor, says, "Go deal with this guy. He's an expert." You know, um, we can use a lot of that information um, right off the bat, shortcut it, um, and give the really robust advice. Um, so yeah, look, I, I think we're looking at that model and being that risk specialist. Uh, for other advisors as well, um, and I think there's a there's a demand for that. And I, I think I mentioned something in XY recently, and someone said, "Ask the independents," because uh, independent advisors, um, generally large, larger firm, um, mm. don't want to do uh, risk. And you know, uh, call me the call me the trash man if you will, but uh, you know, I, I think risk is a really important part of the strategy. 
Um, but I'm not going to go write a transition retirement, so um, mm. stay well clear of that. But as far as pulling, picking apart PDSs, I'll take it. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, I'm talking to lots of advisors and and that is a big trend is no one wants to give insurance advice anymore. They just want to outsource it to someone that they can trust. And so, yeah, and, and we've spoken about this and I think that's a great model for advisors who really align with that fee-for-service model and, and think that's best for their client, but they don't want to um, provide that um, fee-for-service insurance advice because it, it is very difficult to do. Um, and having an outsource provider that they can really they can trust and, and they can help them with their clients is, is um, yeah really amazing value add and, and we see that in the you know we we get paid a commission and I'm very comfortable with that model and um, and we're doing that with other advisors um, so I see it more and more and and just I mean I've kind of had a few rants about this on the podcast before but I see that as being a really big part of the profession is going who is best of breed in this area that I'm not comfortable doing um, because it's okay not to do it and the code of code of ethics actually kind of encourages that um, to say if you're not if you don't have an expertise in this then you shouldn't be providing that advice and so if you're doing one or two insurance applications a month well do you really have the expertise in that um, and probably not to do it um, at a competency level that the clients expect and so yeah referring that out is is really a good kind of strategy and it takes the risk off your business <laughs> to be honest <laughs> gives Sean the risk oh look and, and I mean that goes both ways and it, and it's it's really hard to trust other advisors sometimes um, because you can't see what's under the hood you don't know what they're doing and um, you know as you say speak to 10 advisors and get 20 different strategies you know, I, I still get clients who come from very good sources. Uh, you know, I was at a GP practice on Thursday, 50-something-year-old saying, oh, I need retirement advice. And I went, look, I'd love to have a crack at it, but I'd probably do a horrible job of it. And then you think, mm. well, who's this person going to go to? Uh, who has the same level of understanding of, you know, how a GP sole trader operates and, rah, rah, and all this sort of stuff? And it's, look, a list of two or three people. Like, it's it's not a lot of people and it's people I've known for decades that, you know, take a long time to sort of build that level of trust up to say, hey, let's move it across. And um, I remember fellow David Pitt um, from Viridian saying a while ago, look, you don't do business with somebody if you haven't driven across the Nullarbor with them. Um, and that sort of stuck with me is like, you need to have these aligned core sets of values. And if you're not in a business with somebody and you're not working side by side with them, it's very hard to have that trust to hand over a client to somebody. Um, so making sure that both of you know where both of you sit is, you know, really important, I think. Um, and having that aligned goal of we're both just here to look after the client ultimately. Yeah, and, and I hear that a lot with, with advisors being concerned and, and, and this is a topic I was interested in talking about today is like having that professional respect for other advisors because it does it does get under my skin that we that we kind of throw each other under the bus um, as advisors, not you and me. Um, we do that as well. But um, yep. as advisors, we throw each and each one of each other under the bus and say, you know, because we've all seen a client who had a bad advice experience um, and it's not it's not unusual. And so we can always go, oh, it's the other people. I wouldn't do that. Um, but no doubt clients who've come to me have had a bad experience and no doubt clients who've come to every advisor has had a bad experience. And what what I just am a big believer in is just – don't be afraid to refer on because you don't know them perfectly or you don't trust them perfectly, but just go, you know, and, and just be involved in that client relationship ongoing and just say, hey, I think these guys are good. You know, we've sent a few clients to them and we've had good good responses, but let me know how you go. Um, and then if there is a, an issue with that, that advisor and that client, then don't just, you know, be adversarial, go, oh, help me understand what's going on. Is there just a communication breakdown? Like what what is going on and, and what are kind of the issues? And and maybe you can, you know, work with the advisor to, to help, you know, facilitate that, you know, a good relationship or or just say, hey, yeah, that's, you know, apologies for, for you know, referring them and, and it's really good to help understand this. So I guess people are, are much more fearful of getting a bad um, kind of outcome from that referral and, and a less... And, and fearing that poor outcome and not willing to refer on. And I, I, my view is I'd much rather refer quickly and refer well. Um, and if there is a bad outcome, I'll manage that if and when that happens. 
um, because most advisors in the market are really, really, really good. Um, it's just we just may have a slightly different view on, you know, passive versus versus um, what what word am I trying to say? Passive investing versus active. Active. Yeah, active investing versus passive. I may have a different view, but it doesn't mean that the an advisor recommending something that I wouldn't recommend is naturally not good or or not doing their best thing that they feel is good for the client. Um, and so, yeah, I always just say, just refer, you know, understand their business and refer quickly. Um, but, you know, just be be willing to have a conversation with the advisor and with the client if there is a bad outcome. I'd be really interested to see if um, AFA and FPA together make that list a bit shorter. Remember they tried that Tinder for advisors thing a while back? and you Did were, they? Yeah. No. Um, it was Tinder mixed, for mixed advisors. Re- um, Dante was running this thing where essentially you, um, I think it was Dante, um, search for a FPA member in your area and it matches up with their needs. Oh, sort of okay. Thing, you know, yeah. Right. So, yeah, and and that sort of thing. I mean, if, if I'm getting a referral from the FPA website that say, oh, look, I've got someone trying to get into a nursing home, like obviously it's failed dismally. So, you know, building out that model. Um, would be very interested to see if, if um, that would play a bit better so you could say, hey, look, here's a shortlist uh, for clients that can find us in one place. And, you know, AFA and FBA are going to have to smash their systems together at some point, so might as well throw that in the mix. It's an interesting world we live in. Well, Sean, this has been a really good chat. Uh, I know I've taken heaps of your time, so I really appreciate it. You've been on the podcast before, but I'm going to give you these two questions again. What's an interesting hobby that you have? I remember one of them that you told me last time. So give me a new one. Interesting hobby. Someone told me last week, you know, if you need a hobby, um, I think I was moderating a Facebook group at the time about finance. So yeah, I still don't have hobbies, man. I just do this all the time. That's it. You're uh, you're reading PDSs all day, every day. That's you need <laughs> no, I don't read. I don't read the PDSs. Sometimes I'll argue about stuff. Um, oh, come on. What do I do? Play online games. There you go. Got a new Switch for that Father's was, Day. That was your last one. You got a new Switch. What's your what's your go-to game? Oh, it's Mario Party at the moment because it's more for the kids than it is yeah. for me. But uh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming out. How do people get in touch with you if they want to know more about Sean Clements? Uh, just norfinancial.com. Pretty straightforward. Great. Or you're on LinkedIn, you're on Facebook. You can't get off Facebook. Yeah, all of those. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Heath. Appreciate you coming. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think someone else will get value out of it, I'd love it if you could forward it on to them. And as always, we can continue the conversation in the My Risk Advisor Facebook group. All you need to do, open up Facebook and search My Risk Advisor and I'll see you in there.